2: Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Lint Podcast. Philips has announced two new OLED TVs this week with a host of new features including HDMI eARC and HDR10 Plus Adaptive, and of course the company's own lighting technology, Ambulite. But with the new screen technologies like Mini LED on the horizon, is OLED still the way to go? Pocket Lint's Rick Henderson was at the Philips TV announcement and joins me to discuss the details. Meanwhile, how do you go about instilling trust in a digital personal assistant that doesn't physically exist? Well, that's just one of the questions I put to Ann Toth, the director on Alexa Trust Team at Amazon, when I recently chatted to her. And following on from Samsung Z Fold 3, Mike reviewed in the last episode, Pocket Lins Cam Bunton is here to tell us about the other folding phone from Samsung, the Samsung Galaxy Flip 3. Is this folding handset the more practical of the two? But first, back to you, Rick, let's tell us more about the Philips launch.
3: Yeah, of course. Um, Philips uh, held a, a swanky London event mm. to launch the OLED Plus 986, which is their brand-new flagship TV, that replaces the two-year-old 984, and the OLED Plus 936, which replaces last year's 935. Um, both TVs are super high-end mm. Uh the best technologies you can pretty much get in a TV today, um, and like their uh, forebears, also come with Bowers and Wilkins sound systems uh, that have been redesigned this year. They look similar, but they sound quite different. Quite quite a, a lot more improvement in the sound quality. Um, so that's that's a, quite a big deal for Philips. They're, they they uh, Philips is. Kind of going in that direction, or TP Vision is going in, uh, which is the parent company of the Philips mm. brand in Europe for TVs and sound. Um, they're going in a new direction. In the fact, that they're going quite premium now. Um, they were telling me uh, personally that the premium market is where it's at now in televisions. People want premium TVs. They want the best not just and and you know you can get OLEDs now for sub one thousand pounds. Do you think that's a change in the sense that
2: we've we've been sat at home for the last year, or perhaps watching more TV, or it's just we're we're expecting more because we can now get streaming content that is
3: better? Yeah, undoubtedly, because we're all being captive audiences. That's an, a number one thing. You look at um, cinemas and their uh, box office takings mm. are so low at the moment because everybody's actually investing very heavily in their home entertainment. And and I think that that won't be something that will completely change um, post-pandemic. So uh, people really want the best, and the best at the moment is OLED. However, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, mini-LED is coming up fast. Now, what was good about going to this event in London? And this is the first event I've been to in, what, 18 months? Hmm. And ironically, the last one was also Philips in Amsterdam. where I got to see an OLED TV and a mini LED TV almost side-by-side. Side. Um, Philips' um, high-end mini LED was there as well. And um, I have to say, I was extremely impressed. I hadn't seen one yet. And having been an owner of an OLED TV for a good four or five years, um, I've always been a sort of evangelist in, in that picture quality because the OLED picture quality is incredible. But mini LED offered black levels that i've not seen on an led tv before and so i'm very i think if you're not if you've not got the money to invest in a high-end oled tv you should really genuinely consider mini led because it's a technology that is coming up fast
2: and so do you think that's something that will you know do you think we'll see a shift in because samsung supports many LED, don't they as well? Um, and there's other manufacturers in there. Do we think this is something that is, you know, the one, the new technology to watch, partly because it's cheaper, or is there still some, some sort of, uh, some success and some purpose in still getting OLED?
3: I, th- I think the way it's going to be is that uh, OLED will become the technology of choice for pure picture or picture purists. Because um, having uh, and also for design purposes, if you think about it, an OLED TV can be made so thin mm. um, that you can literally stick it on the wall. Um, LG's wallpaper TV, um, whereas mini LED has a backlight. There's you know, and in fact, the backlight is chunkier than some LED TVs because some LED TVs use side. LED lighting, which yeah. allows the panel to be thinner, whereas mini LED that all of the backlighting is behind the LED, the LCD panel um, and then switch off in zones. So it will be a chunkier set. Now I'm of the opinion that people are caring less now about the design of their TV and more about what goes on picture-wise. So um, personally, I don't think that matters. And also when it comes to Philips, Philips um has ambilight anyway. Mm. So it's OLED TVs tend to be slightly chunkier anyway because it has to have that ambilight uh going round all sides. And in fact the the latest two OLEDs I saw has four-sided ambilight which is quite spectacular and and I think is by far and away Philips bif- biggest differentiator in the market. Um oh, yeah, ambilight right. once when you have it you've got an ambilight TV Yes, you? Yeah. so when well, Ambilight is just a game changer, literally, in fact, for me, because I play a hell of a lot of games on my TV. And Ambilight really makes your eye just draw in. It opens up the playing field, draws in your eye to the middle. It's excellent. Um, the one thing I would say on that front is I also spoke quite a lot with Philips about gaming, on their new TVs because they have really attacked this. They've gone for it. They've got all of the gaming technologies built into these brand new sets. Um, but the one thing that I've experienced with OLED in the past, and I w- and you wouldn't get on it mini-LED, is screen retention. Now, gaming is a big, big problem for screen retention in the fact that an awful lot of static images um, like the uh, your health bar or um the crosshair of a of a thing um for me fifa has little health bars in the in the corners in cyan which burn into the sort of like have yeah, screen retention yeah. on the cyan panel so when you have an oled tv and you're playing games you have to be really conscious that certain elements of that game aren't on tv on the tv for like five hours or more <laughs> Philips has attacked this quite well in the last year in the fact that what it's done is it's got this technology that will dim the zones that it sees there is a static image without the eye the, really picking that up. To yeah. stop the burn-in. Exactly. However, if you're a really big gamer and you know that you're going to be gaming like 10 hours a day, it's mental, but some people do. Yeah, um, not in China. <laughs> then, then mini LED could well be the answer. Mm. Could very well be the answer because you're getting almost OLED pitch quality but without any of OLED's cranky issues.
2: And so when are we likely to see these TVs? Are they Is it announced now come like December or do we think we're going to see them quite soon?
3: Um, relatively soon on the OLED three, uh, 936 and 986. Uh, they are both coming within the next month or two. Um, what, they, what would normally happen is that they would have been shown at IFA, the uh, trade show in Berlin that happens annually at this time of the year. However, that was cancelled this year due to the ongoing pandemic. So uh, Philips had its own event. Um, And what normally happens is as soon as EF is done, you get it around September, October when TVs start to come through anyway. And that's the second year refresh. So I would imagine you'll see them October at the uh, latest. really. Still to come,
2: Cam gives us his verdict on the Samsung Galaxy Flip 3 smartphone because obviously being
1: a smaller phone, there's less room for stuff. But you still get the Snapdragon 888 processor, which is the top tier android processor at the moment you still get lots of ram and storage wireless charging
2: when you ask alexa for the answer to something or set a timer while you're cooking you expect to get a trustworthy and truthful response and hoth is a director on the alexa trust team at amazon focusing on accessibility privacy and deepening customer trust in alexa enabled devices but how do you go about instilling trust in something that really doesn't exist in the physical world in the first place I started by asking you to explain what Amazon Alexa Trust actually is.
0: So Alexa Trust is a unique organization. Um it is uh, it's like I said, it's within the Alexa organization. It's a group of of product uh, product managers that think about our relationship of trust with our customers and ways that we can build product features that help enhance customer trust.
2: And how do you how do you go about making technology that you can trust? I mean, it's all, you know, we throw these words around all the time, mm-hmm. but I presume it's not just something like, yeah, let's make a product and off you go.
0: <laughs> so I think one of the most important things about trying to build products that people that people love to use and that people trust is is just educating people on how the product works and being really transparent about all of the product features that you have. Um, technology is increasingly sophisticated these days, and I think there's a little bit or maybe a lot of wariness that people have about how technology works and a lot of questions. And so part of what we've really focused on doing is educating customers about how Alexa works, uh, educating them about the features that we offer and how to control and manage your data um, those things are are I think very foundational to helping to bring customers along and get them comfortable with the way the te- the way technology works.
2: Now trust is an interesting topic because I mean, for example, Pocket Lint works with an organized a nonprofit organization called the Trust Project. And mm-hmm. it kind of is all about trust within journalism and and ethics mm-hmm. and, and how we go about and did and you say about transparency. One of the things that they do is is talk, they talk about sort of key indicators on the page, which are, are fairly easy to pick up. With something that's a voice-enabled device, how do you go about creating key identifiers for customers to be aware of those things within Alexa?
0: Uh, well, so... In terms of the uh, the interactions that we have with customers, in terms of are you talking about? Yeah,
2: and in that sense of like, if you come onto a Pocket limp page, for example, oh, you know, there yeah. are a number of things that we can do to to show Absolutely. people that they can Absolutely. trust us. We have the Trust Project logo. We have you know the ability to email of the course. journalist that's written the story. We have you know ability mm-hmm, for them mm-hmm. to go through to see who owns the site or how we work or what we do or our diversity reports and stuff like that. With Absolutely. you know with Alexa with with a voice enabled product, there isn't necessarily the same visual cues that you'd get by reading a a pamphlet or or on a page or or things like that. So how do you go about dealing with that when it's a a voice product that effectively means that you you don't need to use your eyes?
0: (laughs) Well, true. Uh, Although the majority of people that interact with Alexa enabled devices are doing so with Echo uh, hardware. So the Alexa voice service is the voice service piece, the software. The mm. hardware uh, is the echo device. And so for the majority of customers who use the service, they're they're using it through through an echo. And so we actually have built some features into the echo uh, that are all about uh, privacy by design in a very foundational way. So for example, if you if I were on a screen right now, if you were looking at me, you would see behind me is an echo show. Um, and there's a bright red bar at the bottom of that screen because I'm talking to you about Alexa, and if that if it weren't muted behind me, um I would be invoking Alexa by by using that wake word. Um, and in fact, the wake word itself uh, is designed. Um, in a way so that people know that you know after I invoke the wake word, that is when data is streaming to the cloud. That is when effectively Alexa is quote listening. Um, so those were very intentional design choices that introduced a little bit of friction into the customer experience to get them to understand this is it's only working under these circumstances. And if you choose to turn these features off, the device in fact won't. Work, um, but we also have uh, through the voice interface. There are opportunities, and oftentimes when we will ask a customer to confirm uh, a specific uh, intent or request, um, there's a back and forth that happens uh, that that allows people to um, to actually be. To, to actually confirm their intention vice versa so there are a number of things that we do both through voice as well as through visual indicators uh to give customers access to uh to some assurance as well as some other features that we offer
2: now you kind of briefly touched on this in that answer but you know a lot of people are worried that alexa mm-hmm. is always listening and
0: mm-hmm. that seems
2: to be the main concern that readers have listeners have that mm-hmm. you know how 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 much is alexa listening when does it listening how how can you, you know, is it listening all the time?
0: Uh, no, no, and I think that's the, you know, if I were, that's the sort of myth busting um, portion of this of this conversation, where I think it is the most common misperception, uh, is that Alexa is always listening. We we've worked really hard to uh, to make it clear. In fact, the circumstances under which Alexa is actually streaming your voice to the cloud in order to return a response to you. Um, Some of those are visual cues, they can be auditory. Uh, In fact, we do a lot of work in accessibility and making uh, features available to customers of all different uh, abilities. So we've actually, so you can, for example, um, have Alexa use an auditory cue to let you know Mm -hmm. that we have heard your response and that we are then streaming that to the cloud. In most cases, you'll see a blue ring light, for example, that will show you uh, when Alexa is active, um, which you can then physically mute as I have in my home. Um, and so those are some, some things that were built in at the very beginning. But, but I think what is really important are the transparency tools and the degree of transparency we offer customers. So you can see and, and you can see all of the transcripts and you can listen to the voice recordings. So you can inspect them all. We make them accessible to you. Uh, you can delete them all. You can say things like, Alexa, what, you know, delete what I just said. Alexa, delete everything I've ever said um, through a voice command. So we've tried very hard to give customers access to all of that information because it's through that degree of transparency that we think we really can um, help establish that relationship of trust with, with customers. You know what we know. You can see what we know about you, and you can choose what you'd like to do with it. Keep it or delete it. It's up to you.
2: Now, a lot of cases, a lot of times, you, you might argue from an engineering or dev perspective that the more that you can anticipate what I'm about to ask Alexa by perhaps listening or whatever, the better the result would be and the faster the result would be. So, how much pushback does your team give to those within the company that say, hey, look, if we could do this, that, that would be brilliant because we'd get better results and all the other stuff? Is, is there that conversation, or is it just that they know? That this is a you know a case of it's a no-go area, regardless if it would make the product better. Because you could argue to say, well, if Alexa's listening all the time, it knows that I'm about to ask the, you know, what actors in what movie, because it can follow the conversation. So when I do eventually say, okay, we we can't work it out ourselves, Alexa, what's the answer? It's already got the answer.
0: So a couple things on that. So first, there is a very direct tie to data and product improvement, because this is, you know, we are using artificial intelligence, machine learning, we're using, we're, we're training systems uh, to, to get more accurate and to be, and, and we actually, there's, there's substantial amount of data on just how accurate and how, bet, how much better the product gets uh, through the use of data. So there's a direct tie there um, over, Lex has been around for a little over six years, but we're constantly introducing new languages. And when you think about the difference between what you type into a search box versus what you say, um, there's intonation, there, there are very many dialects, accents, uh, different types of vernacular and expressions in different parts of the world. Expressions you use in the UK are gonna be quite different than what we use in the United States. All of those things get factored into uh, to how we make Alexa better and work better for, for everyone, including people who have stutters, people who have uh, different types of speech patterns because of disability. So there's a lot there that goes into improving the product. Um, but I also do think about the things that we've built in in the very beginning, as I mentioned, the ring light, the wake word, are introducing conscious mm. friction, in part because the relationship you have with the device like this, it, a relationship of trust, if you think about a relationship you have with another person, when you first meet someone and you don't know them, it takes a, a while for you to get to know them, and to learn whether or how, how much to trust them. Sure. Um, I think it works kind of the same way with a product like this, right? So, We've introduced these these points of friction in the beginning for you to get used to the way the product works. In the future, as we offer more conversational features, more ambient features, you're only gonna use those features if you have learned to trust the product, if you have learned that you can go in and see what we know about you and you can access it, control it, delete it. Once we've built that foundation, all of these features that will be coming that make Alexa smarter, faster, more accurate, those are things that I think you'll use more if you've learned to trust us in the beginning. So I look at it as a journey and a relationship that you have with this service, with this device, that isn't that different from the types of relationships you would have with other people in your life.
2: And and I suppose, you know, how the world views trust in a very different way, depending on where you are. And, Mm -hmm. and, And how do you go about navigating that? Because Do you just say, right, well, in Europe, you've got GDPR and in in Mm -hmm. California, you've got, you know, different sets of rules and and elsewhere, you know, and and how do you, do you just do what's needed within that territory or do you, do you set a global standard? Where do you draw the line?
0: Well, I think, you know, I don't think people are that different in different parts of the world. I mean, there are absolutely from a, from a regulatory standpoint, from a legal standpoint, there are different legal requirements in different parts of the world. Um, but I think you know customer expectations around privacy have a lot to do with what we tell people to expect, and then you know how we fulfill on that expectation. Um, I you know having worked I worked in this space. I started working on privacy in 1998, uh, and it's been 23 years of of working in this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, there I would say overall you know Europe has been has aggr- has been more aggressive in regulating in this space. Um, But, but overall, I would say that privacy has been something that is as a consumer issue. uh, It's more for us, I think, and from, from many other companies, it's a reflection of your brand and your values and what you care about as a company is what is reflected in the types of privacy promises and the delivery on that, that, that we make. So um, because here in the United States, we have not uh, had regulation in the same way Um, but we operate in a way that I think is consistent globally because it is a question of how do we respect the customer? How do we do what they expect us to do? And how do we make sure that we are clear about that uh, to our customers? So it's a a lot about education and it's a lot about saying what you do and do what you say. And that's pretty much consistent wherever you are in the world.
2: Right, right. looking at big tech and 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 some of the ways that approaching it apple is obviously very keen on privacy they've kind of mm-hmm. made that a, a sort of one of their flag flag bearer elements of of what they do facebook kind of implies that it is obviously you guys google etc but if you look at the way that facebook has you know allowed multiple data breaches to happen over a number of years and yet still people's uh, still people flock to the service to, to carry on using it, even after all the Cambridge Analytica, things like that. You know, Facebook numbers continue to rise. Does it sometimes upset you that that if you, you're putting all this element, you know, putting all this effort into trust and making sure these services are more trustworthy, and yet other companies sometimes who aren't following by those those same ideals still see, still see things grow because ultimately people don't seem to care?
0: Well, so a couple, uh, let me let me just uh, push back on a couple of things you said there. So one, I don't think there's any company that would ever say that they've allowed a data breach to occur. That is sort of one of the things we work really hard on security, uh, but that is a, you know, there are bad actors everywhere. And so I would say that, you know, there's no company that is ever, uh, would ever say they've allowed a data breach to occur, period. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, we work really hard to try to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, and in terms of, of trust, I think, and in, in terms of caring about privacy, I see evidence every day that customers care very deeply about these things. Um, in fact, you know, we, we hear from customers all the time about these issues, about what they care about. And that's one of the reasons why we continue to create uh, privacy controls and features for customers to use, because there's a demand for that. I think the conversation that has been had, uh, you know, like, as I mentioned, because I feel like I think I've established I'm old and I've worked on these issues for a very long time now. Um, you know, 20 years ago, I, you know, I don't remember there being such a conversation in the media, uh, in the world around us. I mean, there are, as you noted, you know, Apple has spent a, a lot of money marketing around privacy, around their privacy features and what they, what they are doing in that space. We have invested a lot of money and a lot of time in educating customers uh the Alexa Privacy Hub and with the controls that we've built, uh, because because there's a demand for these things, because there is a public conversation that's been happening, um, not just among pundits or advocacy organizations, but among people. Uh, The average consumer is asking questions about privacy. Um, And for us, particularly thinking about the type of device, as you mentioned, we have we are selling a smart speaker uh, that is in in most cases in people's homes, and that is an incredible privilege to have someone put a device that you've manufactured inside their house or inside their pocket, right? Hmm. And so it's we take that obligation to be worthy of that trust incredibly seriously because if they don't trust us, they have other options, um, and that's you know that's something that I'm I'm very cognizant of. So. Um, so i would I would argue that customers absolutely do care or we wouldn't be working on these issues, and we wouldn't be having this conversation for your listeners
2: Sure, sure. and the final question I suppose I have is is where do you hope we'll be with all of this in five years' time
0: with all of what
2: well with just with trust with with people trusting devices with do you think do you think we're there at the moment and and we're at the level that we need to be, or do you think there's a lot more work to be done?
0: I think there's always more work to be done because technology is moving very, very, very quickly, and so we need to make sure that as technology advances, the privacy controls, the the privacy dimension moves in lockstep, and that we're that we're inventing and innovating around privacy. I don't think I think there's a fallacy in the world that that there's like a tension between privacy and product innovation, and I would say there isn't. In fact, you can't innovate around privacy. And I think what we've been seeing in the marketplace today is active competition on privacy as a competitive differentiator, which is beneficial to consumers. There is a sort of rising tide is lifting all boats in this space, and I think consumers are benefiting from that. So I expect and I, you know, call me in five years and we'll revisit the conversation. But I believe that you will actually see more tangible progress being made to, to ensure better privacy and hopefully better security uh, for for customers because that's what they expect in demand
2: Samsung recently launched two folding phones the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 3 which we covered last week on the podcast and the Samsung Galaxy Flip 3 The former is a phone that turns from a standard-looking smartphone into something more akin to a tablet, while the Flip 3 takes the approach of taking a standard-sized smartphone and folds it into something smaller, much more pocketable. While folding phones aren't anything new, Samsung, Motorola and others are all experimenting with the design. For 2021, Samsung has taken that original idea and made it much better and, crucially, a lot more affordable. So is now the time to jump into a folding smartphone game? Cam Bunton from PocketLint has been using the Flip 3 and is here to tell us how he's got on.
1: No, oh, I've gotten really well. I mean, it's the the end sort of impression that you get from the Flip 3 this year is that it's just a much more mature device than the previous models because they made the design a lot more sturdy, so it doesn't feel some it doesn't feel like a fragile phone, but it still gives you that benefit of having a proper smartphone that you can then. You just fold it shut, and all of a sudden, it's this tiny little wallet-sized device that you can fit pretty much in any pocket, even inside your blazer shirt or whatever.
2: And so, I suppose the big question, one of the questions I had with Mike uh, in the last episode when we were talking about the Z Fold Three, is: is do you does the flip element to it, this ability to fold it into something smaller and pull it out, does that add? anything to the experience i mean it's a long time ago that a lot of us probably used a clamshell phone and yeah. kind of the moving from the clamshell to the candy bar i.e., you know the traditional android or iphone design that we've had for years. the last 10 years yeah you know do we feel that it does is there a benefit to having that that screen that folds away or did it just become a, a bit cumbersome
1: no, I, I mean, I personally really like the feel of opening and shutting a phone. I don't know if you used many of the flip phones back in the day when flip phones were trendy. I'm, I'm guessing you did. Um, but it was just that, that feeling of opening and shutting a device is quite satisfying in a way that these big flagship candy bar style phones don't give you that. You sort of just press the button on the side to lock it and unlock it, which, I mean, it's practical. But the opening and shutting of this phone, it just it just feels nice. And you know, when you're done with the phone, you shut it away and then put it off to one side. And I don't know, it just feels like a bit more of an experience than pressing a button, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. And in terms of um, and in terms of screen quality, I know a lot of Mike was saying a lot of the earlier foldable hand. You know, we had a lot of screen issues with the fold. Of yeah. passed because of the plastic screen, because of the you know wanting to peel off the cover and all the yes. other stuff. That's obviously we're now three years in to this, aren't we? That's yes, this is third are. iteration. Have they kind of ironed out all the bugs that we would have expected by now?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I mean, there's still some compromises that you get with having a, fla- a flexible screen. Obviously, they can't build it from glass because glass cracks, so it's still plastic on the front mostly. Um, but they've, it's a really good screen. It's got 120 hertz refresh rates, which means it's really smooth and fluid, and it's also 1,200 nits peak brightness, which is up there with the best of them. So in terms of visual quality, it's great, but the trade-off is being a foldable phone, you still have that crease in the middle, which you do see and feel from time to time, and for some people, that might be a little bit off-putting, but it's not been a major problem for us when we've been, we've been testing it.
2: You could see this as a flagship. Obviously, it's you know it's a tiny bit niche because of the folding element. But do we yeah. does has that distracted from the fact that the, of the phone qualities? Is it you know does it have great camera? Does it great speed? You know all the things that you'd expect. If what I'm trying to get to is, if you bought this phone, are you making a compromise for the fact that you're also getting this shiny futuristic foldable screen?
1: I mean, of course, yes, um, because obviously being a smaller phone, there's less room for stuff, but you still get. The Snapdragon 888 processor, which is the top tier Android processor at the moment, you still get lots of RAM and storage, wireless charging, you get high water resistance rates, which is actually quite impressive for a foldable phone. But the trade-offs are the, the camera quality is not quite up there with the best phones. And also the battery is smaller. So the one thing I've found is maybe a regular big flagship would last me almost two days on a full charge, the Galaxy Flip. Um, needs charging every single day sometimes more if I'm quite busy Um, so that's the one trade-off it's got quite a small battery in it so that doesn't last as long as the bigger
2: devices and overall is it time as I said in my intro is it is it time to jump into to a flip phone is it is it a viable product now
1: I think it is I think it's at the moment for me personally the way I feel about it is it's probably the most exciting phone on the market right now and it's it's one of the first foldable phones that I would recommend buying without too much hesitation. The compromises aren't massive. They're not going to detract from the experience too much. And you're still getting this really cool folding phone. And it comes in a lot of different colors, which is kind of cool and, and fashionable in, and at the same time.
2: Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, pip pip.